And let's take our Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, looking at verses 13 through 21. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1033. Page 1033. And as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text. Let's bow together. Our Father, we are indeed grateful to gather together as a church family to worship you today. Lord, what a a remarkable gift the local church is to see so many people from different backgrounds, different life experiences, different ages, different ethnic heritages, and yet all gathered as one assembly, singing the same hymns together, bowing to the same prayers together reading the same word together, and now preparing to study a portion of your word together. But truly, there is nothing like the local church. We thank you for the book of Revelation, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us over the course of these months to work our way through this book. And I pray, Lord, that the central teachings of this book would would make their way into our very souls, that they would change our perspective on our present existence, and that it would increase our hope for the life to come. Lord, help us today as we consider this small portion from chapter 9. Be glorified in this hour as we apply your word, as we respond to it today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, in a fallen world, pain is a part of life. In fact, it's more than just a part of life. It is intrinsic to life. It starts before we've even taken our first steps, before we have uttered our first words, even before our eyes have seen the light of day. Philip Yancey expresses it well in his book entitled, Where is God When It Hurts? He takes us back to the very beginning of our lives. He writes this about it. He says, Your world was dark, safe, and secure. You were bathed in a warm liquid, cushioned from shock. You did nothing for yourself. You were fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assured you that something larger than you met all your needs. What a fine life it was. But then he goes on. Then one day you felt a tug. Then another, then stronger, then harder. The walls seemed to be falling in on you. Those soft cushions were now beating against you, crushing you, pushing you downwards. Your body was bent in half, your limbs twisted and wrenched. You were falling upside down, and you felt pain. There was more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head was being squeezed, and you were pushed harder. You hurt all over. Then, he says, you began to hear the faint sounds of crying and groaning. Louder and louder, and an awful fear rushed in on you. Your world was collapsing. You were sure it was the end. Then you saw piercing, blinding light. Rough hands pulled at you. Everything suddenly grew bright and cold. And then you felt a painful slap. You responded with a cry of anguish while everyone around you began to laugh and cheer. And then he writes, congratulations, you have just been born. And so I say again that pain 
is among our first experiences in life. And from our first breath to our last, it will be our constant companion. But friends, for us Christians, pain is a burden that we can bear. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, it's because our grief is mixed with hope. And as he said to the church in Corinth, it's because we know that our present sufferings are light and momentary when compared to the glory that is to follow. And so for for us Christians, we understand that whatever pain and, and suffering we might experience in the here and now, that God is sovereign over it, that He is capable of turning it around for our everlasting good, and we look forward to the day when we are called home and there is no more pain or suffering or sickness or death. And we look forward to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, to the resurrection, to come to our new bodies. This is what enables us to persevere through the trials of the present. But friends, not so the wicked. Not so for those who have despised God's gospel offer. For such people, there is no comfort in pain and suffering. And indeed, according to the scriptures, the pain of the present is really nothing but a foretaste of greater sufferings to come. Which leads us into the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it offers us a glimpse of God's plans for the last days. And as we've worked through this book together, we have seen that part of God's plan is to complete the salvation of his people The other part of his plan is to complete his judgments on the spiritually obstinate. That is to say, to complete his judgments on those who have hardened themselves against him for those who have despised his gospel offer. And today we are in Revelation chapter 9, which is one of the chapters detailing God's coming judgments. Specifically, this chapter is taken up with God's trumpet judgments. These are the judgments which fall in the latter half of the tribulation period, the time Jesus called the Great Tribulation. We've already looked at trumpets 1 through 5. Today we're looking at trumpet 6. Friends, as we work through this very, very sobering judgment together, we're going to learn that there are three heartbreaking consequences to spiritual obstinacy. Three heartbreaking consequences to spiritual obstinacy. And understand that I take no pleasure in sharing these awful things with you, but the scriptures have given them to us that we might gain wisdom by them. That we might not make the mistake of being a spiritually obstinate people so that we might avoid the awful tragedies that befall the obstinate. Let's look at these together now. First, we see that spiritual obstinacy sets heaven against us. Sets heaven against us. We see this in verses 13 and 14. The Apostle John writes this, quote, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now let's pause here for a moment. Let's remember back during the Old Testament era what worship was like back then. Back in the Old Testament time, worship centered on a temple, and the altar was at the center of the temple. 
And that altar was a symbol of God's mercy and grace. Sinners would approach that altar, they would offer their sacrifices upon it, and they would receive divine pardon when they did so. They would go forth from the altar in renewed fellowship with God. The Old Testament scriptures tell us that altar also had four horns, one on each corner. And those horns symbolized God's mercy and grace. You see, accused criminals could flee to the altar. They could take hold of the horns to seek pardon for their crimes. Fugitives seeking asylum could also grab hold of the horns of that old altar and seek safe haven. The altar was a place where grace was extended. But now here we are in the book of Revelation. We're looking at this coming day of the Lord. And here we learn that there is also an altar in heaven. And it stands in the very throne room of God. And that heavenly altar looks very much like that Old Testament altar. It also has four horns. But as the book of Revelation progresses, it's clear that this heavenly altar is not a symbol of mercy and grace. This altar is a symbol of divine judgment. Please notice here from the verses we have read, the order to execute the sixth trumpet judgment comes out of the altar. And in fact, it comes right from the midst of those four horns. So a place once associated with mercy and grace, a person that, uh, a place that sinners could run to for pardon and mercy, it has now become the place from which God gives his orders to judge. See, the book of Revelation is telling us that God sets himself against the spiritually obstinate. For them, the seat of God's grace will one day become the seat of his justice. Friends, you'll also notice here that the judgment decree is carried out by an angel of heaven. Now, the scriptures teach us that God created the angels to be servants of himself as well as of humanity. But now, in Revelation, during the day of the Lord, we find the, judge, the uh, angels serving God by dispensing his judgments on the world of unbelief. And so spiritual obstinacy sets God against you. It sets the angels of heaven against you. And then don't forget, it also sets the saints in heaven Against you. Do you remember the martyrs under the altar in chapter 6 of this book? They were under the altar and they were pleading with God, saying, God, how long till you avenge our blood? They were asking God to hasten his judgments on the world of unbelief. They wanted him to, to hasten the arrival of his kingdom. And so, friends, here we see that the first consequence of spiritual obstinacy, of despising the grace of God, is that all of heaven is set against you. God, the God of heaven, the angels of heaven, the saints of heaven, literally every inhabitant of the heavenly realm is directing its energies against you. And what an awful, awful thought. But friends, it gets even worse. In verses 4 through 9, we also find that spiritual obstinacy sets hell against us. It sets hell against us. Friends, at first, this might seem counterintuitive. I mean, after all, if, if we are setting ourselves against God and all that he represents, surely we, we, could, we would think that we would have the devil and his hosts on our side. 
Surely if God is our enemy, then the devil would be our friend. Friend, we've learned that that is not the case. Do you remember the fifth trumpet judgment? In that judgment, God permitted the devil to open the doors of the abyss. And out of the abyss came swarms and swarms of of demons, those who had been imprisoned for ages and ages. And when they were released, what did they do? Did they come to the aid of unregenerate humanity? Did they wage war against the angels blasting those trumpets? Did they take the battle right to God in heaven? No, they did none of these things. In fact, they went directly after the unregenerate. Those who have the same opinion of of God as the demons do, they went after them. We see, friends, that the devil is not a philanthropist, a lover of humanity. He's a misanthrope, a hater of humanity. He desires to see human beings ruined, whether by their own choices or directly through his oppression. Hell is against the unregenerate, too. This truth is further enforced by today's text. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 again. It says, Then the angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And here's what the voice said, verse 14. It said, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. I want us to focus on the very end of verse 14. Here we see that the sixth trumpet judgment involves the release of four angels bound at the Euphrates. Now let's start with the Euphrates. What is the significance of this? Friends, the Euphrates River has a long and dark history in the Bible. Euphrates was the name of one of the four rivers that cut through the Garden of Eden, which means that the Euphrates was the site of the world's first lie, as the devil whispered his lies to Adam and Eve. It was the site of the world's first act of spiritual defiance as Adam and Eve took a bite from that forbidden fruit. The river Euphrates was the site of the world's first murder and of the world's first act of divine judgment as God brought his curses upon humanity for their sins. And after Noah's flood, a new river was named the Euphrates. This is the one that we know today. It's the river that cuts through modern-day Iraq, 1,800 miles from top to bottom. After Noah's flood, the Euphrates became the new cradle of civilization. It also became the new center of human rebellion against God. This is where humanity defied God at the Tower of Babel. It was along the, the river Euphrates... It's where God had to confuse human languages and scatter human beings across the planet. Later on, when God made his covenant with Abraham and then with the nation of Israel, God established the river Euphrates as the eastern boundary for the promised land. So west of the Euphrates, it was was the promised land, a place for God's people. East of the Euphrates, the land of paganism and darkness. The Euphrates was the boundary marker between the two. As the Old Testament scriptures unfold, we see Israel's greatest enemies being invaded from the Euphrates. This is where the Assyrian army came through, destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. It's also where the Babylonian Empire came through, taking the southern kingdom of Israel. Both of these dark empires crossed the Euphrates. And friends, for all of these reasons, the word Euphrates is 
has become synonymous with sin and rebellion and judgment. Here in Revelation chapter 9, we see the sixth trumpet judgment involves releasing four angels who are bound at the Euphrates. Who are these four angels? Well, they are not angels of God. They are angels of the devil. These are fallen angels. Only fallen angels are bound by God. Just as the fifth trumpet judgment released demons bound in the abyss, so the the sixth trumpet judgment releases demons bound at the Euphrates. This location is an omen that their activities are going to be truly horrific. And indeed they are. Look at verse 15. It says, And so the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. Here was their mission to kill a third of mankind. Sixth trumpet judgment is the release of four more demons. These ones bound at the Euphrates, that ominous place, that place of rebellion, and judgment. These demons are released, and now their grim activity will be to sweep away one third of unregenerate humanity. Now, friends, there are about 8 billion people in our world today, which means that if this judgment occurred today, more than 2.5 billion souls would be lost. That is the combined population of Europe, North America, and the continent of Africa. Or it's the combined total of China and India. We are talking about an unprecedented loss of life. The world has never seen such human misery before. How will they do it? How will these four demons wreak such havoc on the world? Well, verses 16 and 19 tell us how. These verses tell us they're going to have a lot of help. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, about 200 million. John repeats, I heard their number. He says, I'm not exaggerating. Verse 17, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's head, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And so here's how these four demons will will slay a third of mankind. They will do it by gathering together a massive army, numbering perhaps 200 million, and together they will wage war on the unregenerate. Not on those who belong to God. Remember, he has stamped them with his seal. But they shall wage war on the unregenerate. Now, what is this army? Well, during the 1970s and 80s, men like Hal Lindsey popularized the notion that this was the Chinese army and that the the horses and the the fire-breathing mouths and all of this, that 
that these were army tanks and helicopter gunships and missiles and, and things like this. It became very, very popular at the end of the 20th century to imagine a, a massive Chinese military marching across the world and destroying human life. Friends, as popular as this interpretation has been, I think it completely misses the context. Completely misses the context. Friends, this is not a human army here. This is a demonic army. Again, look at their description, verse 17. John writes, This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. The fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And then down verse 19. The power of the horses in their mouths is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, friends, this description is nearly identical to the description of the demons that we saw in the fifth trumpet judgment. Let's go back to that passage, chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. There John wrote, in appearance the locusts, remember these locusts were demons, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So if those were demons at the fifth trumpet judgment, these must be demons here in the sixth trumpet judgment because their descriptions are the same. Horses and breastplates and fire breathing and tails that sting. This is a demonic horde. Remember also that when the fifth tr trumpet was blasted, this was called the first woe. In a subsequent text, we're going to see that the sixth trumpet judgment is called the second woe. So if the first woe is demons, then the second woe is probably demons. This is what the sixth trumpet judgment is. God releases the four demons chained at the Euphrates. These four demons stir up an army of demons, numbering hundreds of millions. And this great demonic army wreaks its havoc across the world, bringing, bringing great death and destruction to all the world. See, friends, what's happening in the book of Revelation is that the Apostle John is receiving a vision of things that are normally invisible. This vision concerns God, angels, demons. These are spirit beings. Not beings that we can normally perceive with the five senses. But what's happening in the book of Revelation is that God is permitting the Apostle John to see with his physical eyes the spiritual beings and what they are going to do during the day of the Lord. And this is why the, the images are so fantastical in nature. It's why we see beings with human faces and lion's fangs and eagle's wings and and breastplates blazing like fire. It's because John is seeing spiritual beings physically represented. So this is not a human army. 
John knows how to describe a human army. What he is seeing is a horde of demons, demons empowered to kill a third of the unregenerate. So I say once more, my friends, when you turn against the God of heaven, you are not just turning heaven against you, but you are also turning hell against you. When you despise the the grace of God in Christ, then you have God and his angels and his saints exerting their energies against you. And then you have the devil and all of his hosts working with equal ferocity to ruin you. Heaven and hell both arrayed against you. But then, friends, it gets even worse than that. We see finally that spiritual obstinacy even sets us against ourselves. Sets us against ourselves. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Listen to what John writes here. He writes, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Friends, I want you to notice here that even in this stage of history, God is willing to hear the cries of repentance. Notice that first. Even here, in the day of the Lord, where six scroll judgments have already been released where now six trumpet judgments have been released, where we have the most hardened of all people left on the earth, people committing crimes like murder and theft and immorality. Yet even at this point, God is willing to hear cries of repentance. He is still willing to forgive. Friends, truly God's grace is without limits. My friends, understand this. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how long you have been in a pattern of rebellion against God. It does not matter, for there is always mercy with God. And if you will respond to his gospel offer with faith and repentance, turning from all of that, turning toward him, then he will receive you. And he'll do so with open arms. And you will find the God of heaven to be a kind master. He'll be the kind of a king that you always wanted to be governed by. Because this is the kind of God that he is. My friends, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Allow me to read those verses to you. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says to the church in Corinth, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So as the Apostle Paul looked at the congregation in Corinth, he saw a people guilty of every imaginable vice. They had done it all. 
But he also saw a people who had been touched by the grace of God, and they had confessed their sins and pled the blood of Christ, believing in the all-sufficiency of his atonement. They had put themselves under his lordship, and now they were new creations. Paul says they were washed. That means their whole record of sins just wiped clean like it never happened. And Paul says they were justified, meaning declared righteous in God's sight. So despite the fact they had this long, long record of sin, God looked upon them as positively holy in his sight. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ to all who believe. And then he says they were also sanctified. That means they were made more holy in practice. You see, as they learned the ways of God more and more, they were becoming more and more like him. So Paul could look at this church in Corinth. He could see them guilty of every sin, and yet they were a new people in Christ. Friends, what a great comfort that passage is, because as we look at our own lives, we know that we are just as guilty as the people of Corinth. Every kind of sin they were guilty of, we are guilty of as well. And yet, if we have confessed those sins, if we've come to God through faith in Christ, we know that we too have been forgiven, that we too are new creatures. We know that we too are children of God with the prospect of everlasting life. Friends, there is mercy for repentant sinners. John 3.16 is the most important most famous verse in the Bible. Most of you probably know it. I invite you to say it with me. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the offer that God makes to all people Everywhere That includes the spiritually obstinate. He says to them, you come to me, confess your sin, see your sin the way I see your sin, forsake it, turn away from it, come to me, have me as your Lord, and you will find a good Lord in me, and you will find forgiveness with me, and you will find an inheritance with me. God's mercy is without end, but friends, the great tragedy here in Revelation chapter 9 is that despite the offer that God holds out, even during this time, despite the offer he holds out for redemption and forgiveness, they choose to persist in their sinfulness. It says those who were not killed by the plagues still, still did not repent. They could have repented and been God's people, and had the stamp placed upon them. But they chose not to repent. It says they chose to continue worshiping demons, the very beings tormenting and killing them. They continue to worship them. They continue to worship idols. These are objects made of wood and stone, objects that can offer no help to people in distress. And they continue to practice their ruinous sins, sins like murder and sorcery and Sexual immorality and theft. Now, does anyone really want to live like this? Do you want to worship the very beings who are ruining you? Does anyone really want to spend their life murdering and stealing and killing? Surely not. But their ongoing hostility to God prevents them from doing anything else. You see, when you turn against God, when you settle in your obstinacy against God, you enslave yourself. 
to a self-destructive lifestyle. You continue worshiping things that cannot help you that indeed may be your ruin. You continue to practice those vices that compound your guilt every day and make your life harder to live every day. You enslave yourself to it. What an unspeakable tragedy spiritual obstinacy is. When such people appear before God's judgment seat, they will have no one to blame but themselves because God provided an all-sufficient atonement and he held out the offer of reconciliation to the very end and still they did not receive him. We see here the spiritually obstinate become their own worst enemies. My friends, please, please learn from their example. Learn from their example. Don't make their mistake. Don't be obstinate toward God. Friends, I began this talk by describing the reality of pain in our fallen world. You know, someone has wisely said, for the Christian... This world is the closest thing to hell we will ever experience. But to the unregenerate, to the spiritually obstinate, this world is the closest thing to heaven they will ever experience. Hear me well, friends. God is glorified in the display of His grace and in the administration of His justice, which means that He will be glorified in every single one of us. He will be glorified in the sinner and the saint alike, but in different ways. For one, he will be glorified in the display of his infinite mercy, and in the other, he'll be glorified through the display of his holiness and his justice. But either way, he will be glorified in all of us. How much better for us to experience his grace rather than his justice. Friend, don't make the mistake that we see among the obstinate people of Revelation 9. Make the right choice. Choose God and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that God sent into the world to live and to die and to rise again for your justification. Claim Him. And and Christian, if you have felt the temptation to drift, let this passage shake you back into, back onto the road that you need to be on. Let this passage be a warning to you of the dangers of apostatizing from the Lord, choosing the way of the world. There is nothing, nothing good awaiting any of us there. If you haven't done so yet, repent and believe and live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, as we work through this portion of the book of Revelation, we are confronted with some very sobering truths. We learn here that you are a moral being, that you have created a moral universe, and that you will establish your righteousness upon it one way or the other. Lord, we see here the tragic consequences of persisting in obstinacy against you. Lord, we see that it sets you and all of heaven against us, that it sets all the forces of hell against us, that it sets us against ourselves. Leaves us isolated and on the road to ruin. Lord, would you please work in each one of our hearts 
For those who have not come to you with confession of sin and pleading the blood of your Son, Lord, might you awaken in them that faith, that desire, that they might be saved from the wrath to come. For we who are Christians who may feel the temptation to drift into a pattern of sin, Lord, help us to see the danger of that. Lord, why would we want to join the path of those who have set themselves on the road to ruin? Lord, might this passage shake us out of our complacency with regard to the sins that we harbor in our own lives? Might you prompt us to confess those, to renew our fellowship with you? Lord, we pray that you might glorify yourself in this time of worship, that you might glorify yourself in the salvation of many people. Lord, use this text to drive many to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.